able to keep the Sabbath without interference, without hassle, without having to fight the world around us and all those things that you have to deal with when you're, it seems, away from here or around God's people, wherever they might be. I've noted over the years and experienced it early in my life in West Texas when uh, there was no local congregation around. Big Sandy was 500 miles away, and that was the closest. And uh, it was difficult. It was just difficult to keep focused for parents, for children, for everyone. And there have been times as an adult when we've been removed uh, away from, and it's hard to grow. You need stimulated every week. You need encouraged, inspired, chewed on, whatever we need. Uh, <coughs> we need that contact with God's people and through God's Word. And without it, we tend to sort of either stagnate and go backward or certainly not go forward. It's just something I've noticed and noted with uh, people throughout the years. Those that are off to themselves, by themselves, they can't grow. They just don't grow. Uh, I guess nothing against them, but we do need the stimulation and the contact. And you don't get it just by phone uh, or video or whatever means is there. It's difficult. Uh, iron sharpens iron. And we need to be with each other, among one another, and encouraging and helping one another as much as we can. And sometimes it doesn't even require much, just the fact that you're there uh, is encouraging and strengthening. That there are others who are being faithful, that they're holding true, that they're being involved. Uh, there's that group therapy, I guess you'd have to call it, of being with like-minded people that stimulate you and, and helps keep you on the road. Anyway, if you would, let's go to 1 Kings 3 this morning. I guess it is afternoon already. 1 Kings 3. <clears throat> kind of breaking in in the middle of uh, the story about Solomon. But it says here in chapter 3, verse 1, Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that is, an alliance, a closeness, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Eternal and the wall of Jerusalem round about. So through all the magnificent building process that Solomon undertook, he had the daughter of Pharaoh there, uh, perhaps partially as a situation that was to keep the alliance alive and well. Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built to the name of the Eternal until those days. Now some of the Israelites apparently were basically still worshiping God, but they had begun to do it in an unapproved manner, in the high places that the Gentiles around had created, and perhaps they, as uh, followers of, had created some themselves. <clears throat> so it's not something God approved of. And as you go through the litany of the various kings of Israel, you find that some 
were righteous except they didn't tear down the high places. Others were wicked and didn't tear them down either, and occasionally you found one that tore them down. So it was a mixed bag in terms of the kingship of Israel, some good, some bad, some indifferent, but it was rare to find one who tore down the high places. And we find here that Solomon loved the eternal, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places as well. So Solomon was acquainted with God. He loved the way of God and of his father David. And yet he too imbibed of this. <clears throat> there was no specific place to go and no altar of God set up. So even though he may have been ostensibly sacrificing to God, he was doing it in an unapproved location and way. And that is recognized here. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. He took a thousand animals and sacrificed them on that altar in Gibeon on that one occasion. Now that shows that his heart was very much with God, and giving that larger sacrifice certainly was expensive and difficult, but he did it anyway. Now I want to point out here that Solomon was not perfect in his ways. He loved God, he knew the true God, he tried to serve Him, and yet everything he did was not according to the way God would want it done. I think there should be some encouragement here for us in that Solomon at this point in his life certainly had not attained perfection, nor would he ever. His father David had made some mistakes, serious mistakes in his life, had repented of them, and God used him greatly anyway. And David is going to be king of all Israel in the millennium and throughout eternity. So, with you and me, <clears throat> though we may have, though we do have flaws, God is willing to work with us. And in fact, as Paul said, uh, as he named the works of the flesh and said, as some of you were, actually all of them were, but I guess he was being kind to some degree. So, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, have we not? And yet, here we sit today, having been called of God, in spite of our shortcomings, and in fact, as he says in 1 Corinthians 1, he chose the weak and the base, those who had problems, who have had problems, who have sinned in their lives, essentially. Now, he didn't say he didn't call any of the mighty and noble. He just said he didn't call many. So maybe we're the few mighty and noble that he called. Anybody go for that? I doubt it. <clears throat> I think we're mostly the weak and the base. So God has his purposes and his reasons. Now, recounting this story of his sacrifice, which was not entirely correct, comes just before a great highlight in Solomon's life. Now, God recognized his heart, that is, a heart of giving, 
and of sacrifice to God. Notice in verse 5, in Gibeon, while he was still there, after he had sacrificed a thousand animals to God, the Eternal appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. So he stayed over after the sacrifice and had a dream. And God said, ask what I shall give you. Now, here's a man who was not doing everything properly, and yet God approached him via a dream and said, You can have anything you want. Ask me anything, and I will give it to you. Now, there are lots of stories that you've heard all your life about the genie in the bottle. And I don't know, you pet it or whatever you do to the, to the bottle and the genie pops out and says you can have anything you want. And many stories of that, many jokes about it and various things. But here was a case in real life where the God of all the universe, not some demon in a bottle, was offering this man anything he wanted. What would you and I do under those circumstances? We were offered anything we wanted. You could talk to a hundred or a thousand or a million different people and come up with a lot of different answers of things they've thought about, dreamed about, fantasized, or whatever struck them right at the moment that they wanted more than anything else. Now, we have to understand that God knew Solomon pretty well. He had preserved him after David and Bathsheba had gotten together illegally. Uh, Well, the, the first baby died, but Solomon came along next, and he was preserved. God only punished David with the one in that circumstance. And he had said that he would pass the kingship along to Solomon. So God had had Solomon in mind and had been watching him. For his entire life, he knew his problems, he knew his difficulties, and yet he decided that he would appear to him and give him anything he wished. Now, knowing Solomon, I think God was pretty sure that it would be something honorable and something worthwhile that Solomon would ask, because God ponders our hearts. He watches us, he reads our minds and our emotions, and he knows how we think, how we go about life. Anyway, and Solomon said, You have showed to your servant David, my father, great mercy. So Solomon in his mind pitches back on the relationship between God and David the wonders that God had done through David with Goliath and other ways, and then the low parts of David's life as well, and the mercy that God had shown. So he immediately acknowledges the greatness and the mercy of God. He's thinking correctly here. When God offered him anything he wanted, he says, great and merciful is God. And he goes along with that attitude as he expresses himself to God in this dream. He said, You showed great mercy according as he walked before you in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. 
And you have kept for him this great kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. So he says, it's of your mercy toward my father David that you're allowing me to be on the throne. He didn't immediately get all swelled up and say, you know, I am great. I'm the son of David and it's only natural that you would come to me as king and offer me anything I wanted because I certainly richly deserve it. He was not puffed up in his own mind at this point in his life. And now, eternal my God, you have made your servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. In his own estimation, he was not greatly important. He was not viewing himself as a great king or a mighty ruler or anything of the kind, even though he had been set over all Israel. But he said, I feel like a little kid inside. I don't know how to come in and how to go out. It's like life is still a mystery to me. It's difficult to know what to do, how to do it, how to go about life, to rule Israel, all Israel, and to do it in a righteous and good manner, to be harsh when he needed to be harsh, to be kind and gentle when he needed to be, to know how to react to people's different problems and difficulties and uh, how much to tax, how much to rule, how severe, how much government we really need and don't need. He was trying to do things righteously, and yet there were many, many questions that would abound, and he'd, he'd scratch his head and say, I don't know whether I'm coming or going. I don't know whether I can come in and go out the door properly. So the circumstance he was in created a great deal of frustration and confusion in his mind, trying to sort out the right way to do things and how to react to people what to do with them when they were being good and what to do with them when they were being bad. But he did appreciate God's mercy, and that's the first thing he mentioned. But you'll see that these were the things going through his mind by what he asked for. He says, I'm a little child. I, I, I don't know what to do. I have difficulty making decisions. And your servant is in the midst of your people, which, have chosen, which uh, you have chosen... A great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. So he says, here I am to serve you. There are multiple thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Israelites here that you've set me over to rule, to guide, and to lead. And yet I feel like a little kid. What do I do? How do I handle these things? So this is leading up to his request in verse 9. Give, therefore, your servant an understanding heart to judge your people. An understanding heart to understand their needs, their hopes, their wants, their dreams, their grievances, their difficulties, their sins, their faults, their triumphs. that I may discern between good and bad. Sometimes it's hard to figure people out, isn't it? When you meet somebody, you begin to assess them. 
you listen to them talk, you watch their body language, you look at their eyes, you try to figure them out. What kind of person is this that I just met? Is this a good person? Is this a bad person? What is it about this person? Is this one of someone I want to get to know better or someone I had best stay away from? So we begin to, with everything they say and every expression on their face, make judgments about what kind of person that is. So he wanted understanding to discern the good and the bad. And we'll see shortly, God gave him that in huge amount. For who is able to judge this? You're so great a people. How do you even begin to start to judge, to rule, to guide a multitude of people like that? Or even one or two or three? When we rear children, or up-jerk them, or whatever expression you use, we have two or three or four or a dozen or whatever we have, and sometimes it's monumental just to determine among those children who did what, when they did it, how they did it, what their attitude was, and then to settle upon a reward or a punishment based on that. How far we should go or shouldn't go. And we think about our children and how we should treat them and what we should do with them. It's difficult to know what to do. And the speech pleased the Eternal that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, verse 11, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself, you didn't put yourself into the picture at all, you asked for understanding to judge rightly and discern the good from the bad, and how to serve God's people. That was the forefront of Solomon's mind. He took his responsibility very seriously, obviously, beyond anything he might ask for. You didn't ask for long life. Some people would. Neither have you asked riches for yourself. That's one of the first things that comes to people's mind when the genie comes out of the bottle. They begin to think of all the fancy things and money and various things they would like to have. Nor have you asked the life of your enemies, and he had enemies, David had had enemies, even among his own sons he had those who tried to do a coup d'etat and take over the kingship, who stole his wives from him, who within his own family, people who hated him and were trying to get rid of him. So Solomon had observed these things as he grew up. He had seen what his brothers, his sisters, had done. He had seen what some of David's most trusted men had done and how they had betrayed him. And since he became king, and others who wanted to be king had not, he had built in enemies from the very beginning, from the time that the crown was placed on his head. People who hated him simply because of who he was, where he was, and why he was. He didn't have to do anything to incur their wrath. He didn't have to do anything to them 
or for them or anything else. Just the fact that he was there agitated greatly some people who wanted him to die or to go away or to abdicate or whatever their personal view of the situation was. So with a certain part of the population, to use the expression, he was damned if you do and damned if you don't. Didn't make any difference what he did. Some people would automatically take the negative side. How good he was, how bad he was, it didn't make any difference. That's the way or where he was placed in the minds of some. And no redemption. Once pigeonholed, always pigeonholed. And you'll be that way till you die. So he said to him, You've asked understanding to discern proper judgment. Behold, I have done according to your words. Lo, I have given you a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like you before you, neither after you shall any arise like you. Solomon had more wisdom and understanding by far than Adam, <laughs> by leaps and bounds, but beyond uh, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he had more wisdom and understanding than any of those pillars to be of the kingdom of God mentioned in Hebrews 11. And he had more wisdom and understanding than anyone since, including all the prophets, John the Baptist, the twelve disciples, and any who have come since. That's pretty good testimony to God's capacity to give a young man who felt like a little child and didn't know his way in and out of the house. And I have also given you that which you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like to you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as your father David did walk, then I will lengthen your days. Give him long life as well. So all the things that God said you didn't ask for, I'm going to give you anyway because you made a good judgment and asked for something truly worthwhile that had to do with God's people, not himself. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. But it was a dream from God, not just the maunderings of a man. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all his servants. So he came back and before the Ark of the Covenant, instead of on a high place... Now he sacrificed sacrifices before the Ark of the Covenant, which is a far more appropriate place. And not only that, he made a feast to all his servants, prepared a banquet, gave them a meal. Uh, so there was a celebration, in other words. He was very, very thankful for what God had given him. Now let's see this in action, and we all know the story, but what incredible wisdom to discern between good and bad is what he had asked for. 
So the, the, almost immediately he had a situation where there was a good woman and a bad woman. And he had to determine which was which. And did God give him an incredible gift? Let's see the story here. Then came there two women that were harlots. So in one sense, they were both bad women. But one had a good heart in terms of others, perhaps, as opposed to the other one, which it will show was probably wicked to the bone. So they were both women of ill repute, and yet he didn't send them away and say, well, you're sinners, so get away from me. Uh, They brought to him a decision that needed to be made. So he did not consider their livelihood, their reputations, or their character in that sense. He considered their situation to make a righteous judgment. And the one woman said, Oh, my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house, so it was a house of ill repute, and I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day after that I was delivered that this woman was delivered also. And we were together, and there was no stranger with us in the house, save we two in the house. So what they're bringing is a situation with no witnesses. No one around, just the two women living alone in the house and had babies three days apart. So Solomon can't call witnesses. If anybody had seen them outside the house, they obviously were both quite pregnant. So nothing had been born and there was no witness to call. Solomon had to read the minds of these women, listen to their testimony, and come up with the right answer. I've done that many times with my children and years ago. They're both telling their side of the story, and the one telling the story is always innocent, and the other one is at fault. No witnesses... Got these two boys been beaten up on each other. But he did it. No, he did it. And how do you determine who really did it? In some cases, I didn't have, probably never did have, the wisdom of Solomon. So I just spanked them both. (laughs) What else do you do? Somebody did this and somebody's lying, so I'll just cover all behinds and be done with it. But here was a king having to make a judgment between the people. Anyway, where was I here? No one there, no witnesses. Verse 19, And this woman's child died in the night because she laid over on it and suffocated it, obviously. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your handmaid slept and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did bear. A mother can kind of tell, and one was three days older, you know. And the other woman said, no way. The living is my son, and the dead is your son. And this said, no, but the dead is your son, and the living is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Then said the king, 
The one says, this is my son that lives, and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead, and my son is the living. So they're completely juxtaposed against each other. Both have the same story. What do you do? What do you do? How do you sort it out? How can you tell who's lying? Then said the king... Oh, wait a minute. And the king said, verse 24, Bring me a sword. Now that seems like a strange way to solve this difficulty between these two women. And they brought a sword before the king. So he set this up. He didn't just say, Well, I think I'll carve the baby in half and make a threat. He used some wisdom here and said, Bring me a sword. And all the time, these women are beginning to wonder, what's the sword for? Is he going to cut both our heads off? Uh, what, what's he going to do? So he, they waited while he brought the sword. And I don't know whether he flickered in the light a little bit and, and polished it or what. But anyway, it was a prop that he brought out. And the king said, Divide the living child in two. And give half to the one and half to the other. Decision made. Easy solution. Spank them both. Then spoke the woman whose the living child was, was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son, and she said, O my Lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor yours, but divide it. A lot of... Men have done that with women, kill their wives or their girlfriends. If I can't have you, no one else is going to either. That kind of an attitude this woman had. Then the king answered and said, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. She is the mother thereof. Tell real quickly which one really wanted to live, whether she had it or not. And the other one didn't really love the child, but she was going to get some vengeance if she wasn't going to get it. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. So God almost immediately showed Solomon and showed all Israel that he keeps his promises, that whatever he says he will do, he will do. That wisdom remained with Solomon. So I preface where I'm headed today with this section because I want us to pay attention to something as we go along and set the stage for it ahead of time. Let's go in that light to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Here's a chapter that we have, or Dwight Armstrong at least, set to music, which we sing quite frequently as a congregational hymn. Psalm 127, and it is prefaced where it says, A song of degrees for Solomon. Except the eternal build a house, they labor in vain that build it. Now, keep in mind here, as we read these words that Solomon wrote, 
But he built for himself a palace that was beyond the imagination of Frank Lloyd Wright or anybody else that ever designed a house. Something that had never been done on the face of this earth in terms of greatness, of size, of opulence, of riches, of gold and silver, and fine woods from all over the world, I'm sure, uh, because he was trading all over the world, as we can find in other places. So, later on in life, he was writing that whether you build the most fantastic house there can be, or whether you build a great temple, or anything else, unless God builds it, it means nothing. Anything that men do, or man has ever done, comes to waste. Look at all the great empires of the past. The cities, the fine palaces and walls and greatness that you could see in Babylon, in Assyria, in Persia. And today, we have people over there who are interested in such things, who are digging through the rubble and the pieces and the broken pottery and glass and bricks, trying to piece together history and understand how those people lived, what their lives were like, how rich they were, and what kind of life their daily life was. And it's very, very difficult to put it all together because you just have pottery shards and pieces of this and pieces of that all buried and then turned over in rubble and generations with their waste going on top of other generations. And you sort through it trying to figure it out, but it's all gone. It's been destroyed, just like this country is about to be done too. So that the buildings, everything that is here, will ultimately be destroyed, if not by man, by earthquake, by fire, by various ways that God is going to start over with this land, purge it and cleanse it and prepare it for the millennium. There's nothing that lasts. There's nothing that's forever within our experience, Solomon's or ours either. Unless God builds something, it's vain. It won't last. Except the eternal keep the city, the watchman wakes, but in vain. Now, as we approach serious danger in this country... You can have watchmen, you can have people with all kinds of guns and armaments, but it's not going to do them any good unless God is there to protect and preserve. We've read those scriptures. We know that what we have here is vulnerable. We're out here in the middle of the valley. We don't even have any rocks really around us to protect us, if that would. And if we all bought all the guns we could get and piled ammo out here in the middle of the acreage, we couldn't save ourselves. How much would it take from one helicopter or one plane or whatever to destroy everything that's here? Just one sweep. That's all it would take. Or rampaging vandals who would come through. Most of you wouldn't know how to use a gun anyway and are too deaf or blind or weak to pick it up and use it. And I'm getting there. So what defense can we put up? Very little. 
Very little. None, really. So, it wouldn't do us any good to put a 24-hour guard out here, would it? We couldn't stop anything. Only God can. He says He'll be a wall of fire, a defense around those who will obey and serve Him. He will be the one who keeps the city. We've read those scriptures. I believe those scriptures. I hope you do. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. It's vain to try to do everything for yourself you want to do. You'll never accomplish it. You'll never get it all done. Your life will never be exactly as you want it to be, no matter how hard you try. Without God involved to give his beloved sleep, we're restless, we're fearful, we're nervous, we worry, we stew, we fret, we agitate, we nitpick each other, we have difficulties. Given what we've been given, you would think we would be so thankful, so glad, so happy for the knowledge, for the understanding, for the opportunity, for removing us from the world that is about to come apart, that we would speak of good things, that we would speak of God and count our blessings instead of each other's sins. You'd think that, wouldn't you? But then we have to realize, wait a minute, we're human. And being human, without enough of God's Spirit to help us direct our lives and our attitudes and our thoughts, we're going to be satanic and worldly in our reactions, in our statements, in our accusations, in our put-downs, in our lives. It is the lack of God's Spirit that brings about the negative side. Think about it. It's vain to fret and worry over your life or anybody else's, for that matter. The answers are only in God. Now here's a man who had asked for wisdom and understanding. God had given it, and this is just one little chapter to show that he had come to grips with a lot of the human things uh, through his life. As he aged, as he watched, as he observed, as he experienced... He had learned this. Lo, children are an heritage of the eternal, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Family is what it's all about. God gives us family. He expects us to live together, not dysfunctionally, but in peace and happiness, cooperation, service, and love. And he equates the church family to that of the physical family. That we are to be unified, close, loving, gentle, serving of one another, and not have negative attitudes. If we have those, we need to repent of them. So, family is from God. And that's what really counts on this earth is family, because it pictures the family of God. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them, 
They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. So he realized that riches and honor and all these things that a people might desire came to nothing unless we dwelt upon the important things. And the spiritual family is the most important thing, which transcends our physical family by far. Most of us have left some of our physical family to become part of the family of God. Some of us have left all of our physical family to come and be a part of the family of God. Others, God has called some in, and they're blessed by that. But they, too, must realize that God's family is by far more important than their own physical family, their mothers and fathers and children, because it is a spiritual family that transcends that. We need to grasp and to understand that. Now let's go to Luke. Luke, here I want chapter 11. Luke 11. And let's put some of the story of Christ in here with what we have already seen of Solomon as to what true values are and Solomon's status and Christ's status. Luke 11 and down in about verse 31, I think, is where I want to go. Uh, well, let's, let's go back up to 29. And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, but there shall be no sign, there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and was spit out, and then went to Nineveh to warn them, so would Christ come. He would die and be there three days. And arise, and that would be the sign to the world, which is equated here to Nineveh, a horrible, wretched, sinful city, just as society today is the same way. So, that is the sign they would be given. Don't need more sign than that. God comes, lives perfectly, dies, and is resurrected. What more do we really need to turn us into followers of God. So then he says in verse 31, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So he says the queen of the south came to the king of Israel and listened to his wisdom. And yet here you have a greater than Solomon here. And you're not listening. <laughs> this queen of the south came, listened to everything, saw everything, believed. A believer was made of her. You can go back and read the story. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. How? Well, the men of Nineveh were sinners. When Jonah came, they repented for a little while. And then they went right back to their sinful ways, and they are going to be used again, the Assyrian, to destroy this nation of Israel very soon now. 
But he, he says even they will by their attitudes, their actions, their repentance that they will show <coughs> condemn you or put you to shame. Now who was he talking to here? Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, those who looked to Abraham and to God, they thought, who had truth, but were so self-righteous, they couldn't get along with the king of the universe or with the Christ child who came humbly and meekly. They were so self-righteous, they couldn't get along with anybody. And they were jealous of one another and tried to outdo one another and tried to be greater than each other. And on and on and on it went. And he says, you, the seed of Israel, are going to be condemned by this Gentile queen of the south and the people of Assyria, of Nineveh. There's someone here greater than Solomon. Now he used Solomon there because in history there had been no one wiser and more understanding than Solomon. So he makes that comparison. Now let's go to chapter 12 of Luke. And let's pick it up here. Uh, verse 15. He said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Solomon did not ask for riches, for possessions. That wasn't what he had on his mind. And he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? I am getting richer than I can even imagine. I, I don't know what to do with all this. I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns. I have barns, but they won't hold everything that I'm getting. So I'll tear down the barns, and I'll build even bigger barns. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. The man wasn't greedy, I don't think, was he? <laughs> you know, I don't have big enough barns, and I am not going to give anything to anybody else. The only solution to my problem is just to get bigger barns. Maybe I own banks and I'll buy bigger banks. You know, whatever. And I will say to my soul, so, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, relax, enjoy life, go to the beach, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. Now, this was a rich fool, but still a fool. This night your soul shall be required of you. Then who shall these things be which you have provided? You're going to die tonight. You're not going to tear down your barns, and you're not going to build bigger barns. Your life is over. Selfish, greedy rascal. So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We live in a world today that is materially minded, and wealth and money and getting ahead and becoming rich and having a life of leisure and becoming independently wealthy 
is a spoken goal of most people. Whether or not they even begin to have the wherewithal, the knowledge, or the opportunity or ability to earn it, they'd still like to have it. So they know they'll never get there, so they buy lottery tickets instead, which is (laughs) a waste of a dollar. And then you have that lucky participant who wins his hundred or seven hundred million or whatever, and the government takes at least half, and then everybody who ever knew him or heard of him comes wanting some of it, and he spends foolishly, and his life becomes even more miserable than it was, and most of them, within a few years, are stone broke again. And they had that experience, and then they live out the rest of their lives in frustration and misery. And I don't know what they do after that. If they get a dollar, they probably buy another lottery ticket saying, this time I won't blow it. I don't know what all they do. But I've read stories. I heard that over and over in Alaska. It is even on bumper stickers. God give us just one more oil boom, and this time I won't. Throw it away. I'll, I'll amend that a little bit. And they've had two or three or four, and they keep throwing it away. Now, God gave Solomon all kinds of riches. It wasn't what he asked for, but he gave it to him anyway. So it wasn't something that Solomon set out to accrue. It's something that God simply blessed him with, Because he sought first something of value. He was rich toward God. Rich in his attitude toward God. Had just sacrificed a thousand animals before God gave him the dream and offered him anything he wanted. Well, he was already a rich man. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, verse 22, Take no anxious thought for your life, what you'll eat, neither for the body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls of the air? Do we have faith and trust that God will take care of us if we put Him first? Now, we have to do our part. We have to be rich toward God. When we think of riches, we need to think of treasure in heaven. When we think of wealth, we need to think of spiritual wealth in terms of fruits of the Spirit of God. Not in terms of physical wealth. In worrying about physical things. He promises us that if we will put Him first... He will take care of these things. I could probably give a series of sermons about that to help us build that kind of faith where we really do put God and His way and His people ahead of ourselves and of what we might want, whatever that might be. So he said, don't worry about these things. Put me first. I'll take care of you. Which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? Maybe you're only four six. Can you make yourself 
six feet tall by thinking about it? I doubt it. If you then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take you thought for the rest? He says, it's not a big deal to make you a foot and a half taller. I could do it if I wanted to. And when we're raised to immortal, maybe we'll be a foot and a half taller. I don't know. It won't matter. We won't be concerned and vain about it. And there probably won't be any pro basketball to play anyway. So why do you want to be seven feet tall? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, they just grow up out of the ground. And yet I say to you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. God gave Solomon what Solomon had. And Solomon had all the riches, the gold, the silver, the accoutrements of wealth that anybody could possibly dream of. And yet he said, all that Solomon had, wasn't as beautiful, is a lily. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Seek not what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be of doubtful mind. For these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you have need of these things. But rather seek you the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. So Solomon sought first the wisdom, the understanding, the things of God, and all those things were added to him. And when Christ discussed this very thing, Solomon is the one he brought up. Because he had given so much to Solomon, and there was a living example that Christ could use to show how God had done that very thing. Couldn't have picked a better example. Solomon sought first the important and was given the less important without measure. And then he tells us, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that which you have and give to the poor. In other words, don't put yourself first like the guy with the barns. Be willing to give, to serve, to help, wherever, whenever you can. Do what you can for others. Don't be a scorekeeper saying, I gave to you, you better give something back to me. Kind of a Christmassy approach. I better get a gift from you, and I spent 25 bucks on you, I better get something just as good. Uh, Christmas spirit, that's what that is. And he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is your treasure with God? Do the things that you treasure in your heart and mind have to do with God? Or things on this earth, primarily? There's the difference between a spiritually motivated mind and a carnally or physically motiva motivated mind. Solomon put it first. Christ used that example here. Now, I used these to preface going to the book of Ecclesiastes because I wanted to lay some groundwork of who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. A man who grew up around his father who had obeyed God and served God 
had been a human being with mistakes and faults that he repented of, was never forgiven of by a lot of people, I'm sure, and they held it against him until his dying day and probably still do, uh, some of the survivors. Uh, But Solomon had seen God through his father David in many ways. And he had seen the wisdom that his father had. And then when it fell to him to rule all Israel, he felt uh, inadequate. He couldn't do it. Didn't have the wisdom, the understanding, the maturity that he needed to do the job. And it, was, it would have been an overwhelming thing to have those probably millions of people who were depending on him for good leadership. That would be a pretty heavy weight. And especially when you know you have built-in enemies who want to see you removed, who want to replace you, who want to be in your position themselves. And it would be hard and difficult to face the day knowing there were people with those attitudes around you. So he saw very greatly the need for wisdom and understanding. And then God gave it to him. He demonstrated it immediately. And then throughout his life, he had that same wisdom and understanding and dealing with Israel. So he was the wisest man who has ever lived and walked the face of this earth, save God himself, who was greater than Solomon. So I've given almost a whole sermon here just showing... What kind of man wrote the book of Proverbs, which is full of incredible, salient wisdom? A man who saw everything there was to see in people and in society. Who watched the interpersonal relationships between people. The good, the bad, the ugly. Who saw how problems could be resolved how problems continued that didn't get resolved because of vanity, ego, self, pride, wanting one's own way. He saw a panoply of the whole thing laid out before him every day of his life as king. And he thought about those things. God had given him the wisdom to be a thinker, to sort things out and to put them in nice, pithy, understandable sentences or phrases that would encapsulate a certain situation and how we should react when we were under those circumstances. So the Proverbs are a compilation of many of the wise sayings. They didn't come from Genghis Khan or some Chinese proverb. They came from a man of God who didn't write fortune cookies but wrote truths from God about people. There's so much wisdom in the Proverbs. Solomon did not write all of them. David wrote some. And there are uh, others who wrote a few. But Solomon wrote the preponderance of them and was the wisest man. So if you are having trouble or difficulty with someone, with some situation, you can go to the Proverbs, and I'll guarantee you, you will find the answer there. 
Whether you like it or not, it will be the way to handle the situation. Now, if you're full of pride, vanity, and ego, and some of these human things, uh, you might not like God's solution, and you might choose to be miserable and try to make others miserable uh, instead of resolving it God's way. But believe me, the answers are there if you truly seek them with all your heart and try to resolve difficulties between you and other people. They're there. And they work. And Ecclesiastes is a book, and the word Ecclesiastes basically means the preacher. And if you look that up in the Hebrew, it means uh, a writer. It also means a public speaker. Someone who imparts that which he has learned to others. So here is a man who learned much from God and was given great gifts by God and then lived an entire lifetime of sorting out life, of sorting out man's ways and God's ways, experimenting with anything he wanted to experiment with. If there was anything to be curious about, Solomon was in a position that he could try it. He was independently wealthy. He was in charge. He had all the power that you could possibly need, even to life and death. If he said, hack their head off, their head got hacked off. It was that simple. So he had all power, all wealth, all control of anything around him, except attitudes, of course. And he experimented with anything that struck his fancy and had plenty of time and money to do as he pleased. And then as he got older, it was time to do a little preaching. It was time to impart to others what he had learned, what was important and what was not important. Now, he had been given great gifts as a child or as a young man, and then he learned some good lessons and some very hard lessons. And he became what he was at the end of his life. And it was near the end of his life that he sat down and assessed everything that he had been through in his entire life and everything that he had observed with others throughout that life. He didn't miss much. He was in a position to see and know anything he wanted to see and know. And from that, he distilled the thoughts that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. So what I'm saying, and I'll end this with this thought, is that as we address this book, we need to address it with awe, with great curiosity, with great humility and meekness, to realize we are reading the words of the wisest man who ever walked the face of the earth save Christ himself. And that what he has to say here, then, is very, very important in the lives of every human being. 
So we need to pay very close and deep attention to the insights because no one ever had the insight that Solomon had. See you next week, God willing.